0: Welcome to And With Your Spirit, a homily podcast that takes preaching out of the sanctuary and moves it into your daily life. Let us make ourselves open to the voice of Christ and the movement of the Holy Spirit that we might be transformed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you. Good morning, everyone. This weekend we celebrate the halfway or almost halfway point of the Advent season as we move toward Christmas. We call it Gaudete or Rejoicing Sunday where we wear rose or pink to remind us that the, the purple that kind of sits as a pall over top of this season to some degree is being lifted because we see the light that's coming. This is also the weekend where we celebrate in our series for Advent uh, talking about Jesus Christ. The first weekend was creation, then condemnation or the fall. This weekend is about Jesus, who's the reason for all of it, and we talk about His salvation for us. For the times where we have been less than enthusiastic, that means in God, in Theos, Where we've been less enthusiastic about Jesus and instead more attracted to sin, let us call to mind our sins and ask the Lord to make us worthy to celebrate these sacred mysteries. I'd like to invite our kids forward this morning for the Children's Liturgy of the Word. Good morning. How are you? Good? Good. Yeah? You're good? Thanks. Thanks for answering. Today I'm going to be talking to your parents and family and everybody else here about Jesus. Can you tell me one thing you know about Jesus? One thing you know about Jesus. Yeah. He's everlasting. He's everlasting. Sheesh. All right. Yes. That's right. One thing you know about Jesus. He died on the cross for us. All right. What's one more thing you know about Jesus? Yeah. Um, he comes. Kind of- he come alive again. You're right. He rose from the dead. Anybody else know something about Jesus? Yeah, go ahead. He's kind. He's kind. Absolutely, he's kind. Anybody else? I don't want to leave anybody out. See, Jesus, there's so much to know about Jesus, right? But actually, just in those four answers, you told us everything we need to know, right? He's, he lives forever. He came for us, showed us how to be kind, and he was kind to us. He is everlasting. He rose from the dead. He's, he's our God, right? He came to be with us and for us. And if you know that, you know everything. Well, anyways, I'm sure they will stop something else to teach you this morning at said, and Maybe more about Jesus than I can teach you in this little moment. But go forth now and listen to God's word this morning. So again, reviewing this homily series for Advent. Two weeks ago, we began this series with a really long homily about creation. The magnitude, the breadth, the height the, uh, the amazingness of what God has made. You remember uh, I said that, you know, how many thousands of suns can, or earths can fit in the sun? And then the biggest star is called the VY Canis Major, right? The big dog star. And how many suns can fit in that star? You remember? 9.3 billion, right? And how long does it take to count to a billion in seconds? 31 years. 31.7 years, right? It's like, this is like, it's huge, Right? Now, you don't need to remember all those numbers. You just remember that God created it all, right? But we made, we've made, we got this entire creation, right? We made a big point to talk about how big and wonderful God is and what he did, and that the most important part of the whole thing is you. It's you. Of all the things out there, God loves you the most. You're the crown of creation. The next weekend, last weekend, we talked about, well, if God is that amazing, why is everything so bad? And I listed a bunch of statistics of things that are not right in the world. Stealing, um, divorce and relationships, um, abuse, um, enslavement, like real enslavement, addictions. And then also, you know, if, you're not, if that's not you in any of those categories, still the accusation, right? Because who's the accuser? One named Satan, right? He accuses us. Devil divider, Satan accuser. We said, well, if everything is so amazing, why is everything so bad? And the answer is, it's so bad because a really powerful being fell. He's going to drag everybody down with him. Well, now this weekend is, so what's going to happen about that? What's God going to do to that? And the answer is, he sends his son. So that's today's homily, right? Talking about Jesus, as the kids told us before they left for Children's Church this morning. Last night when I tried to give this homily, I talked about Jesus and I felt like people's eyes were kind of glazing over, not because they don't love Jesus here at Corpus Christi or because they gave a bad homily, although maybe I did give a bad homily, I don't know. Anyways, this morning I thought I'm going to rework it a little bit because I think what happened last night was we've heard about, we know who Jesus is, right? We've heard it. And as I was trying to preach about who Jesus is, I think everybody was going, yep, Father, get on, you know, we know it, we got it, right? We're Catholic, we come to church, we got Jesus, like we got it, right? So here's a new spin. Um, I, I'm pulling this from C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author. He says you have three options with Jesus. Three options and three options only. Maybe you've heard this before. Either Jesus was a liar or a lunatic or Lord. He's a, either a bad man, right? Or he's crazy or he really is who he says he is. That's the only options you have. And here's how he explains it. First, Liar. Jesus came along 2,000 years ago and performed a bunch of magic tricks. This is the first option. He, he knew that he was going to multiply fish and loaves one day, and so he had stores underground or had drones overhead or whatever it was, right? He performed some kind of a magic trick and lied to everybody about being able to work a miracle. Or, or he knew the woman at the well before he met her. He found out her background or her history. And as he talked to her in John 4, he sat down and said, Uh, who is your husband? And she says, I don't have one. And he already knew that she had been divorced multiple times, right? He's a liar. The things he said are not true and he faked it and he was really good at it. That's option one. Reasonable option, right? Don't believe him. Option number two, he's a fool. He's a, a lunatic. He's crazy. I mean, he starts off his ministry going into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, eating and drinking nothing. 40 days and 40 nights, I mean, some people who like do like these, these new fasting programs where you like fast all day and eat, eat at like 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, that's crazy, right? One of the guys who used to live in our house, he did that. He would not eat all day until 10 p.m. He got anything he wanted from 10 to 10 o'clock at night to midnight. And then that's all he ate every, every single day. He said it was a healthy diet. I don't know. He's a healthy guy. He could beat me in basketball, so maybe it's working. <laughs> 40 days and 40 nights is how Jesus started his ministry. Out in the middle of nowhere. That's crazy, right? He goes to John the Baptist who's eating locusts and wearing a camel's hair as his shirt and says, I want you to baptize me. That's crazy. He tells his followers, the only way you can have life in you is if you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Crazy, right? It's insane. This man sounds like a lunatic, doesn't he? In fact, he even claims to be God. He says, I am, the powerful words. You remember that from Mel Gibson's movie? He's there in the uh, garden, and when he says, I am, they all fall because they can't stand in the presence of God when God claims his authority. Well, maybe he's crazy. Option two. Or, or he's not a liar, and he's not a lunatic, and perhaps he is Lord. Lord. Perhaps he is who he says he is, St. C.S. Lewis says. You know, the amazing thing about Jesus is all the stuff that he did and all the stuff that pointed to him, all the stuff that he did. We have we have accounts of eyewitnesses who saw miracles happen. You know, I was I was listening to something last week. And it was talking about how most stories or like fairy tales start off with like once upon a time, or in a land far, far away, or at one time in history this thing happened. Whenever the gospels start, they say, in the fifth year of the reign of this emperor, when so-and-so was governor of this place. This is last week's gospel. When all these specific things happened, that's when an angel came to a virgin, betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, right? It's very specific. These authors, they're not saying like this mythical story is something we're passing down. They're saying this is the truth, right? They're saying we're claiming this. And if that's not enough, that they're saying these specific things happened, miracles and wonders and teaching, as the little girl said before she left, Jesus teaching us to be kind. If those specific things aren't enough in the Gospels, there's history across the board, not just Christian history, not just Scripture, that talks about Jesus who died. Jesus who lived in Nazareth, was born of a carpenter, traveled through Judea, was put to death for blasphemy, crucified, and was buried. Right? Right? And we see this in in ancient sources that are not Scripture. Now, think about this. If this is some bad man, who was given the death penalty and he died, why would we still be talking? Why would ancient historians who were not followers of Jesus have wrote a single word about him ever? Here we go, poll. In The last 50 years, thousands of people have been murdered on death row for being bad people, right? For being lunatics, liars, or worse. Thousands. How many of their names do you know? How many history books do they appear in? Now, maybe we should actually know their names so we can pray for them and their families and their victims. But the point is, if Jesus was just some criminal that just got put to death, like everybody else did back in the day, why was his name remembered outside of the Christian community? Maybe he was who he says he was. Actually, this is the kicker to me. I was reading a book uh, by uh, an author named Richard Balcom. He's uh, from London. It's a tiny little book. It's called A Short Introduction to Jesus. If you ever want to read a a short book about Jesus, it's a great book. It's like this big and like 10 pages, No, maybe 60 pages, but it's very very easy. Anyways, uh, published by Oxford if you're looking online for it. Anyways, he said the most credible evidence that Jesus actually was who he says he was is his apostles right? These men left their families. Literally, Peter has a mother-in-law, which means he has a wife and possibly kids. He left his family. They all left their families. They left their jobs to travel with Jesus for a year to three years. I'm not sure exactly how much time. Throughout the countryside, talking about things and working miracles. And then when it's all over with, they don't even watch his crucifixion because they're embarrassed and they're scared for themselves. Only John stays and Mary, because Mary is stronger than any of us and John's with her. Anyways, they don't even go to the crucifixion, but they know that Jesus has died because they see him buried. They go to the tomb to find him, and when they get there, it's empty. Now, they could likewise be liars, right? But can you imagine 10 out of 12 of them, Judas being excluded because he killed himself, and John being excluded because John lived through his days and died in peace, but 10 of the others... They were all martyred. They were tortured. They were imprisoned. And they were killed as laughingstocks for a lie. I mean, that's a pretty bold move for many people to make, to be willing to be killed for something that they believe is not true, something they didn't see with their own eyes. Folks, the evidence is clear. Two billion people in the world, like a third of the world right now claims to follow Jesus, at least in some capacity. A third, there have been more people who have followed and known Jesus' name than probably any other human being's name in history. Why? Because we've seen him. If we didn't see him with our eyes, we've seen him in other ways. We, we know him. We, and maybe if we don't know him and we haven't seen him, we still know that we need him. We need a Savior. It's amazing, actually, that in this Christmas season, the way that Jesus is depicted, you know, we're going to have a big nativity scene up here at Corpus Christi soon. It's like the biggest nativity scene I've ever seen in a church besides the cathedral. But anyways, it's huge, right? It's going to take up this whole area. We get booted out of our seats for a few weeks, which is fine. Jesus can have my spot, right? I'm not going to say anything about the jackass deciding having the deacon spot. <laughs> you were gone two weeks, man. It's fair game. Anyways. We have a giant nativity scene up here, right? And the king, what is his seat going to be? A manger. And how big is it? Small. Why? Because he, he comes to us as a baby. Here's the, here's the contradiction in that, right? The paradox. Listen to this. The book of wisdom, which by the way, if you ever want a book to read in the Bible, read wisdom. We could all use more wisdom, at least really, so I could. It's, it's really practical and it's really uh, kind of quotable. Anyways, Wisdom chapter 18, verse 15, listen. When peaceful silence loomed across the world, then leapt forth a powerful warrior ready to destroy evil. When peaceful silence lingers, that's when leaps forth a powerful warrior ready to destroy evil. And then you jump ahead to Mark. The very first chapter of Mark, the very first encounter that Jesus has with people or beings in the world in his ministry, he talks to demons. And the first thing they say to him is, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Wisdom, a powerful warrior, ready to destroy evil. New Testament, the demons say to him on the first time on the scene, have you come here to destroy us? They know, they know his mission. Isaiah 49, I will contend with those who contend with you. I'm going to fight the people who are trying to fight you. I'm, I'm here to do battle, Jesus says. In fact, there's a word there that's called goel. Actually, when I was in Israel like eight or ten years ago, the first time, uh, our tour guide was named Antonio. He was a big guy, real dark black eyebrows and dark hair. He, he seemed like he was part of the mafia, but he was Jewish and he was from Israel. Anyways, his name is Antonio, and it's like, it's like you know, he's been around, Right. Anyways, we're going, we're in Jericho, and we're like a little outcropping or something, and we're looking over the city, and he points, he's like, see those palm trees behind that? There's like a yellow walled house, the second story. I said, yeah. He said, my family lives there, like cousins or second cousins. And I said, oh great, do you go to see them very often? And he said, well, I just saw them a little while ago, a couple years ago, whatever it was, because I had some business to take care of. And I was like, Antonio, tell me about this business you gotta take care of, you know? And he says, well, he said, he said, I can't tell you much, but I'm the goel in our family. Goel means the one who does the ransoming or the avenging. It's, it's the person who, if someone's captive, debt, or enslaved, that person in the family which is the oldest, strongest man, it's his job to ransom them. Wipe out your bank account to free them. Go and find them yourself with your own hands. Or, if someone in your family has been wronged, it's your job to, to right them by a vengeance. And he said, I don't want to talk about it, Father, um, But I did my job, and I was like, yikes, you know, watch out for Antonio in in Israel. This goel is a real concept, and the word that's used there, I'm going to be your warrior, it's goel. God says, I'm going to come, I'm going to pay the ransom, I'm going to avenge for you, I'm going to get you, he says, the prophet Isaiah. C.S. Lewis, um, again, amazing guy, he says that Jesus landed in disguise to provoke a fight to provoke a fight. You know, the amazing thing about... I got a lot of little tangents this morning. The amazing thing about that, Jesus comes as a baby, right? So that Satan thinks he can win. Because Satan, he tries to fight us because we're lower than he is. Satan's a bully. You're a bully, Satan, wherever you are. He's a bully, right? Don't ever think he has power over you. Because he can't. He can't. He thinks he can. And if you listen to him, he can. But, if, but only if you let him. Anyways, he comes in disguise to provoke a fight with evil. But it's not a fair fight because it's Jesus, right? I mean, so... Satan was a fallen or is a fallen angel, right? He's a created being. He's a spiritual being. If he's a fallen angel, then that means his peer, the one who we we pray to to defend us in battle is Saint Michael. Why? Because Saint Michael is also an angel, right? An archangel. So he's a powerful angel, just like Satan is a powerful angel. Those guys are peers. God, Jesus, he's not a peer, it's not a fair fight. It's an infinitely unfair fight. It's Manny Pacquiao versus Mike Tyson, right? And it's, but it's even more than that, right? It's me versus Mike Tyson, right? It's even worse than that. It's, it's a mouse versus Mike Tyson. It's not a fair fight. And God knows that. But he wants Satan to come so close and to think he can win so he can use all this his power so that God at the last moment can trounce him and abolish him, actually. As St. Timothy says, abolish evil forever. You know, that, that's uh, another amazing thing too, right? So, so Jesus comes on the scene. He comes in disguise. He becomes one of us so he can live like us, to show us. He wants us to hold him as a baby, to do nothing else. Like maybe that's a lesson for us this Christmas. It's been in the midst of all of our busyness, which I've got that too. Today is a really busy day for me to buy Christmas gifts and Christmas party and all this stuff, right? In the midst of all of our busyness, to realize that the only thing that we've got to do at Christmas time to like, find the things that we actually want, like the peace that we don't have in our hearts, the only thing we have to do is sit and hold the Lord. Let Him look at you. Look at Him. That's it. Just do that for a little bit. Change your life. It will. Anyways, in the fullness of time after Jesus works His miracles and shows us who He is and shows us how to live, He finally agrees to be put on the cross. And I say agrees because think about this. The one through whom all things were made, Genesis, the word who became flesh, the eternal everlasting son of God, that guy, the guy who can make those giant pillars of cloud that I showed you from the Hubble telescope or told you about, right? It takes 400,000 years on a space shuttle to get from the bottom to the top. The guy who made all that, how on earth could we possibly keep him on a cross? Where do you find that nail? unless he wanted to be there. He wanted to be on that cross. Why? So you can get off of it. He knows where you are. He knows where I am. In fact, I would say that right now, if I had each of you one-on-one in the confessional, which would take forever, by the way, so let's not do that right now, but, but each of you one-on-one in private, and I said, what's the one thing in your life that you want to change? Like the one thing of all the things. What would you change if you could right now? I guarantee you know it. Guarantee you know it. We all know it. And the thing about knowing it is that it's not, it's not already fixed, is it? Or you would have done it. Like, if you have power, if you had all the power, if you were sufficient, if you were God, you wouldn't have that thing that you're thinking about right now. It'd be gone. You'd have changed it. But you can't. And I can't either. And I know that acutely. And because of that, we know we need someone who can. And Jesus says, I will. And to prove his love beyond the cross, he rises from the dead to show us that death can't win either. You know, this weekend after the masses, um, I had more people come to me in tears about things going wrong in their life after masses than I've ever had in my life. And I don't say that lightly. Um, Problems with marriages, um, surgeries today, Thursday, this coming week people who are suffering because of the effects of the tornadoes that have happened down in the South. Um, even though they don't even know anyone there, it's hurting them. They were crying about it. i had a little kid came up at communion crying about something. I don't know, maybe he got in trouble with his mom in the pew. At the end of Mass, I caught him out and I said, can I give you a hug? And his mom goes, yes. <laughs> Apparently he did something wrong. Anyways, more people after these Masses were crying this weekend. And I wonder if it's not providential. On the day where we wear rose, and we light the third candle, we talk about rejoicing. It's the weekend I'm talking about salvation. And when we, when we face that, I think we know that we need it. And it breaks us down. Because the things that you've been carrying, or that have been haunting you, or that have been oppressing your chest, the things that have been keeping you up at night, or that have been wrecking your relationships, all of those things... They can go away. God came to save you in Jesus Christ. He came to make you free. For God's sake, ask him for it. Ask him for it. He wants you to be free more than you want to be free. And he'll do it. C.S. Lewis says he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. It's clear he's Lord. There's no other option. But is he your Lord yet? Yes, Father, I was baptized as a baby or I converted a few years ago. Amen, Hallelujah. But is he your Lord today? Yesterday I was in the chapel at my house. I tried to pray every single morning for an hour. I tried to. I didn't always do that when I was a young priest four years ago, right? But I try to do that now because I realize I need it. And you need, you need me to do that. Um, you need it. I need it. Um, anyways, I was praying with Isaiah 29. Isaiah is amazing. Great book. Isaiah 29, and there's a passage in there which actually made me actually kind of mad because Isaiah is said he's on his face in the dust, in the dirt, in the mud. He cannot breathe because he's suffocating with a weight upon his back from the sins he's committed. And as he tries to scream from the dust in Isaiah 29, as he tries to scream, he says that his his, uh, yells become a a high-pitched whisper. Like that's it. That's all he can get out. And meanwhile, he says that God is surrounding him on all sides, accusing him, trying to destroy him. And I thought, now that's not God, right? But that's scripture. And I wrestled with it for a while while I was praying. I was like, how on earth is this so? And the only thing that makes sense to me is that it's Isaiah's fault. It's our fault. In fact, it's, there's, there's no such thing in this world as staying still. Everything you do, every word you speak is either moving toward holiness toward being set apart toward God and goodness, or it's moving away. And if you just sit there and do nothing, you're probably moving away. We're always taking a side, the side of good or the side of evil, the side of Jesus Christ or the side of Satan, the devil, the accuser, the divider, always. And Isaiah, in this moment, realized he had taken a side. You know what God's going to do? He's going to destroy that evil. So if you feel like God is not on your side right now, find out whose side you are on. And take the right one. Because the amazing thing is that even St. Michael, who fights Satan, he defeats the evil one not by the sword, not by words. He defeats him by the blood of the Lamb. That's how Michael wins. The powerful angel. He wins by the blood of Christ. It's not because of who he is, Michael. It's because of who Jesus is and that Michael is connected. Are you? Are you connected? I guess I'll close uh, with this. I live uh, at Sacred Heart, right? And uh, our mailbox at our house is kind of a slot on the door, and so the mailman don't always see the mail. And so I usually walk it over to Wesselman's. There's like a little drop box over there. It's not far from our house. So I walk over there to Wesselman's, and I walk back, and people honk at me the whole time, by the way. If you ever did that, hi, back, okay? (laughs) Usually by the time you honk and I look, it's too late. Anyways, I'm walking back from the mailbox. I walk through the parking lot at Sacred Heart. It's Saturday morning, which is one of the two days of the week that there's a huge AA meeting on our property um, tuesday nights and saturday mornings as i was walking through the parking lot i saw some trash so i picked it up and as i was picking it up i recognized there was this really awesome truck with big duels on the back and a double exhaust and i'm a country kid and that was awesome right i drive a prius so like let me dream right anyways it's <laughs> a big awesome truck brand new right and there's a nice range rover parked beside it and there's this little convertible a few cars down but it also between all those cars these nice ones are cars that i wouldn't even take for free you know like like bad ones, like duct tape holding the windows up and stuff, you know? Maybe it was one of yours, I don't know. I saw that spectrum, right? And it made me realize, again, how powerless we are. You might have everything. Enough money to buy a $60,000 vehicle. But the one wrong move, the one time you let down your... The one time you surrender to evil instead of surrendering to God's goodness, grace alive in you, the one time... It's the time you fall, and you end up at Sacred Heart on Saturday mornings, just like everybody else. And I know that acutely. And that's In my family, there's alcoholism. And so whatever your thing is, whatever your darkness is, Jesus wants it. That's the one thing he wants from you today. Give it all over to him and make him your Lord.